With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast in week whatever of it is of the plague years. And um, I am at the dispatch offices by myself. Uh, Downtown Washington is super creepy right now, Um, though probably not as creepy as downtown New York. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you by SaneBox. More about them in a little bit. And, of course, we are a production of The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com for all sorts of fantastic things and to get a, um, um, you know, the, the journalistic equivalent of Gunga Galunga. Um, so uh, today we have um, a very special guest who we've been holding off for a very long time because we wanted to have in the studio um, when he, on his, well, as he, he walks the earth like Cain. And every now and then he comes through Washington and uh, people hide their daughters and their whiskey. And um, But we figured since we may be quarantined for the rest of our lives, we should stop putting it off. And so we have my friend and former colleague, uh, Kevin Williamson. Kevin, welcome aboard. Hey, you know, I have to ask you the question I always used to ask people when they would have me on Fox News, which is uh, who canceled? <laughs> uh, well, as point of fact, uh, <laughs> you uh, – um, again, you were like, I, so what happened was Jim Pethokoukos was supposed to come on and talk about the economic gloom and nightmare and all the rest. And yeah. then he had to, um, honor a commitment to go on of all things MSNBC. Mm. And so I quickly went to my list of people that we've been waiting to get on and you were the top of the list. And so, uh, but yes, thank you for, you know, <laughs> introducing a welcome note of awkwardness to this conversation yes, well, at the top. <laughs> I've always kind of thought of myself as a poor man's Pethokoukos anyway. So, uh, <laughs> that, that works um, yeah. How well do you know Jim? Uh, reasonably well. I think we've uh, been on some panels and stuff together, and we used to correspond a bit, although I haven't really been in touch with him in a while. Smart guy. I like his writing. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a smart guy. He's a good guy. Um, he's a strange man. I, um, I have lunch with him often because he's a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute, and uh, we'll we'll explore the the mysteries that is Jim Pithakukas when he finally comes on here. Strange like he like plays banjo and has a trunk full of heads in a duffel bag or something or No, it's just that he's like um there's a there's a bit of an Al Gore kind of subroutine kind of thing going on with Jim where like you talk to him and you have to wait an extra nanosecond for your words to get processed uh, gotcha. and then he responds to you and um, and he's like, it's weird. There's just a disconnect. He's, he's extremely pop culture fluent and really funny, mm-hmm. but his mannerisms are kind of like, 
um, he should be, even before the plague, um, that he would be walking around with a bottle of disinfectant to de-germify everything. So he's just, he's a, he's a, he's a you know, what was it Whitman said? He contains multitudes. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, so uh, um, we're trying to keep the corona stuff, not, we're not trying to rule it out, but like a lot of people are kind of sick about it. And if you're, <clears throat> if you're corona obsessed, you're likely to go to one of the many uh, outlets that, that that meet the market demand for Corona obsessions, um, but since I have you here and and you do economics for English majors, uh, I figured we could probably get some of it out of the way up front. Um, what do you make of the you know the the the, the fecal festival? We don't want to curse on here. Uh, going on in Washington in terms of how to respond to all this. Well, you know, it's in times like these that you really appreciate having the. Uh steady and predictable and uh, wise and circumspect leadership of Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, and Mitch McConnell in, in Washington. I guess Mitch McConnell actually among those three is pretty, pretty well stands tall. Um, I mean, the huge problem right now, and I guess I wrote a column about that this morning, is that um, the, the implicit question Washington's trying to deal with, which is the trade-off between the economic costs of uh, imposing strict anti-viral measures and the public health costs of not imposing such measures require them to make some calculations about variables that they don't actually know what they are. So we don't know what the path of the virus is going to be. We don't know what the real long-term economic consequences of what we're doing right now are going to be. Um, it may be one of those things where we... Um, you know, we lose six, seven, eight weeks of output and then things bounce back and pretty well come back to, to normal very quickly afterward. It may be one of those things where it takes uh, years for things to return. And we don't really, not only do we not know, we don't have any good way of, of making estimates or of um, getting to a place where we really can be confident in our in our predictions about that. So as I was actually quoted you, or I mentioned your book, The Tyranny of Clichés, in my, in my column today, that we really do have this tendency to be prisoners of catchphrases and such things. And so this idea, this, this sentence that's been going around about whether the cure is worse than the disease is something that really is shaping the thinking right now. And that in and of itself is not a problem, except that it asks you to balance an equation that you don't have the information to balance. And that is, is, is what is worrisome. So the problem for politicians, of course, is that they have, a very, uh, you know, sort of steroidal version of present bias where economic uh, pain in the present to them is almost intolerable and it threatens them with political consequences that they don't want to bear. And so there are a great deal of, I think, bad incentives to make bad short-term decisions based on the desire to try to minimize economic damage in the short term without giving adequate consideration to the ways in which um, a much worse epidemic would, would affect the economy. And it's worth noting that both in the case of the Chinese authorities and in the case of the Trump administration in the earliest days of the outbreak, they tried to minimize things um, pretty clearly with an eye toward preventing spooking the markets and doing economic damage. And what happened was they didn't prevent the economic damage or the healthcare damage. And um, so trying to, you know, sneak your way around that and, and to be super clever about it um, 
Well, it takes cleverer people, I think, than we have <laughs> that we have on hand. Or, yes, we don't have. Well, I guess that's the kind of the problem with Washington. Actually, it, it, Washington's full of clever people, and cleverness isn't the only kind of useful intelligence. And uh, this sort of verbal cleverness that makes you uh, that makes you Ezra Klein, or makes you uh, you know a good speechwriter, or makes you a good debater, um, is not the only kind of useful intelligence. And in fact, in a situation like this, isn't probably in the top ten kinds of, of useful intelligence. But politics is something that's dominated by people who are really, you know, into debate in high school and uh, their decision making processes often are not the ones you would want, I think. Um, first of all, uh, the style guide for the Remnant podcast is that whenever we mention the tyranny cliches, uh, we preface it by saying the wildly underrated tyranny cliches. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. Um, but, yeah, you know, I'll let it pass. Um it's funny you bring that up because uh, right before I got on air, uh, Steve Hayes texted me um, with this line from Andrew Cuomo where he was saying, um, if it saves just one life, it's worth yes. it, which is another chapter in the book. And, yeah. you know, this – it's 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 a, one of these great examples of, first of all, courage on the cheap, but it's also what de Tocqueville would call a clear but false idea. Um you know, as as we both know from like reading our soul, you know, um, not our uh, not our, our spirit or our true sense, but the Thomas soul yes. soul. Uh, if we actually believed, wanted to operationalize the idea that any public policy was justified by saving a single life, then we would set the speed limit at five miles an hour, right? And yeah. um, and. At the same time, I, I, that's you know, in the realm of annoying cliches. At this given moment, when we're trying to we're trying to sort of set up philosophical or dogmatic frameworks for how we're going to deal with this, I find Cuomo saying that more forgivable than when we usually hear that stuff. When we're hearing about arguments about gun control and whatnot, um, where do you? Um, how do you adjudicate this question? Because I mean, I, I don't think. Let me put it this way. There are a great many dumb people who are on both sides of the argument and they tend, particularly on Twitter, tend to crowd out the smart people. But there is a smart argument to be made that destroying the economy to fight this thing is a very worrisome prospect and that there are going to be – as with any other government effort, trade-offs are inevitable. How do you – you know – adjudicate the, 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 the trade-offs here? Well, the problem is it's a complicated relationship that's kind of circular in that um, if there's enough economic pain for people, it makes it very difficult for them to comply with public health directives. So um, the more desperate people get economically, the less really they're going to be about being told to stay in their homes and such things. Because if you're out of food, you're out of food. You're going to do something. And um, on the other side of that is that the um, – Health consequences themselves will, if they get bad enough, have economic effects. Um, you can have 50% of the workforce staying at home because you're quarantining. You can also have 50% of the workforce taken out of the workforce because they're sick. And um, so how these things relate to one another is uh, is one of those very hard to cal- calculate uh, complex things. So for me, this comes down to this is where you can really use uh, – institutional trust and uh, where institutional trust is really valuable that um, if there were some institution or some 
<clears throat> aspect or, or, or person in our government who we could trust to balance these things in a way that incorporates the best information that they have available and pick a plan of action and stick to it. Because one of the things that goes wrong with this stuff is that um, there are lots of plans of actions, plans of action that can work, but you have to stay with one for a while to make it work. I mean, there's more than one way to get something done. But if you start one and then as soon as there's something unpopular about it, you move to another, then you move to another, then you move to another, you're going to end up either not getting anything done or possibly making things worse. And I think that's really where we have a certain uh, lamentable absence in American life that it's not that we don't trust the government because we're Americans and we're anti-government and we're, you know, these sort of frontier liberty types. I mean, that's part of our culture. But one of the reasons we don't trust the federal government is because it's dishonest and corrupt and ineffective. And um, which is a, it's weird, you know, so you, you, you work in Washington and I spent a year there. And one of the really um, shocking things about Washington, if you spend much time there, is that you learn that the government is full of smart, idealistic people who are actually not corrupt, they're not taking payoffs, who are not really primarily trying to figure out some way to line their own nest at some future point in life, and that they're doing the best they can do, and that this mess is the result of smart people doing the best they can do. Um, so these are um, institutional problems that I think that are deeper than, well, Trump's a bad guy, and Trump lies, and Trump's an idiot, and that stuff's all fine. Or, you know, Nancy Pelosi is going to try to exploit this for her own gain. And Nancy Pelosi is the Wicked Witch of the West. And all that stuff's fine, too. But you could change out the cast of characters, I think, and you would still end up having basically the same problems. So we've got um, we've got problems that are not going to be solved by personnel changes, although some personnel changes would be welcome. And obviously, the character of the people we have in our high offices right now can certainly make things worse and, and is making things worse. I, you know, I, I have trouble sitting here listening to you insinuating that we don't have the best leadership possible. And um, uh, so it's funny when I listen to you talk, you know, part of one of my things is that I, um, I can't, as you know, uh, from my book, Suicide of the West, um, I, I tend to hear um, Joseph Schumpeter and James Burnham sort of whispering in my ear a lot these days and we don't need to get deep into what the managerial class is or the new class and all that kind of stuff. But it occurs to me when I listen to, you know, you know, when you watch these press conferences, which, you know, make me want to cut myself, um, the, you know, one of the dynamics that I think is pregnant with a possibility for a real populist anger that that the elites don't understand is that the vast majority of the people participating in this debate particularly what I mean by journalists um, are not in danger of losing their jobs and their livelihoods at this point right ratings for MSNBC and Fox are through the roof and so you have a room full of people I mean I, and I include myself in this to a certain extent I have organized my life over 20 years and particularly with the way we are with the dispatch where, you know, I'm going to be getting a paycheck for a while. Um, and I've organized my life about being able to work from home. And so the disruption for me, you know, it's real, but it's it's far less than it is for some friends of mine and for a lot of average Americans who, you know, are just simply going to lose their jobs. And a lot of the chattering classes, you know, they're not corrupt, but they're they're working from a framework 
that says, oh, gosh, now I have to do my hits on Morning Joe by remote from home, Yeah, which is not the same kind of hardship as not being able to show up for your job as a short order cook or a waiter or, a, you know, a construction worker. And not getting a paycheck. Yeah. This is kind of a, you know, a little stump speech of mine and I won't do the whole thing, but um, because our policymaking conversation is dominated by certain kinds of social and educational elites, it tends to reflect the interests of those elites, by which I don't mean self-interest. I just mean literally the things that they're interested in and their, their points of view of the world. So, you know, there are a lot of stories in the New York Times about admissions policies at Harvard. Uh, there are not a lot of stories in the New York Times about the high school graduation rate in New York City, which is improved actually recently, but still pretty low. Uh, because people care tremendously about colleges, at least people who work in journalism. Elite colleges. What's that? Elite colleges. Yeah, well, especially elite colleges, or yeah. even even the University of Texas. But <laughs> um, uh, you know, because that's 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 their experience, and so um, yeah, I don't think that I think people understand as an abstraction that there are a lot of people out there who make twelve bucks an hour or fifteen bucks an hour who have one week's pay in savings, if that, and uh, who are in immediate financial and economic crisis if their paychecks stop. And um, I think they understand that as an abstraction, but I don't think it really, um, I don't think it really focuses the mind of the uh, pundit class and the policymaking class the way that problems that speak more directly to their experience and their livelihoods and their interests would. So if, um, you know, if the internet went down tomorrow and was out for a week, uh, national crisis for the journalism class, um, <laughs> we would, we would, and, uh, we, and also people who like Netflix and things like that, it would be, uh, it would be a very, you know, big, big thing. But, um, you know, the fact that there are a lot of modest to low wage people in, uh, jobs that people, who uh, work on Capitol Hill or work at the New York Times don't think about all that much. And again, I don't exempt myself from this, this line of criticism. We we can't, um, it's really difficult to get outside of your own frame of reference. And uh, this is just something we who have prominent roles in this conversation or people who have prominent roles in making policy should just sort of daily make themselves aware of that they've got a particular point of view. And a point of view actually is exactly that. When we talk about bias in, in, in journalism, and sometimes it is, yeah, let's go out and get the Republicans or let's go out and get the conservatives and do what we can to make them look bad. But mostly bias in journalism is just, it truly is just bias. It's that people have their own frame of references, their own experiences and things they know and things they don't know. That's why the Times tends to be so bad about things like guns and uh, religion, just given the sort of people who work there. Um, whereas they're better on, say... Um, Intersectionality? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, well, things like um, you can get a better account of the debate about economic policy, I think, between the right and the left in the Times or the Washington Post than you can get an account of the debate about um, gun policy or abortion, things like that. Or foreign policy, actually. Yeah, they do a pretty good job covering that debate, I think. So I have a weird philosophical thread I want to pull on. Um that curious what you think about it on the, in the drive down here, I heard a little segment on NPR. Apparently there was some guidance. I don't know if it was from the CDC or the FDA or some state health authority. Um, I came in the middle of the thing, but the gist of it was, was that someone 
issued a guidance saying that um, it may come to the point to do basically what Italy is doing and um, prioritize patients based upon um, you know quality of life, right? I mean, if like if an 85-year-old with you know emphysema and type 1 diabetes comes in or a 25-year-old and you only have one ventilator, the argument is give the ventilator to the 25-year-old. And uh, I don't think we're there yet, but, you know, that's a real possibility and that those sorts of possibilities show up in all sorts of circumstances in life. And uh, maybe not as stark, but the, the, the general dynamic. Anyway, what was interesting was that a, lot of, a bunch of disability advocates complained saying that this is a fundamental violation of the rights of the disabled. And as a political and a moral tactic, I completely understand where they're coming from. They are basically arguing and advocating for the people that they exist to argue and advocate for, right? You know, if you're in a disability group, you don't want people saying, okay, my people are the expendable ones when it comes time to ration. That's all fine. But it, it just it dawned on me as a sort of weird political philosophical insight that this is a good example of why you cannot have positive rights. You know, the Soviet Union said you have a right to an apartment and to a car and to a home and to a job and all these kinds of things. And that conception of rights, of sort of positive liberties, is only feasible in a sort of in a Marxist sense, an incredibly advanced society, right? I mean, in, in the Star Trek universe where there is literally infinite land on different planets, albeit, and you can rearrange molecules in any form you want through a replicator. And transportation costs are shockingly low, right? Um, uh, you could see a, a Rawlsian kind of, I don't know if Rawls is the right one, but you, know, you could see a sort of pretty strong argument to say that everybody deserves a minimum amount of stuff, right? A sort of Deweyan positive liberty, social democracy argument. Um, and, but in a, in a world of scarce resources, you cannot guarantee rights for things that the state does not have the ability to allocate in total ubiquity and abundance. Does that make sense? I mean, is there... yeah, I, I think that it's, um, it's, it's logically meaningless to declare a right in scarce goods. So um, if you've got 25 people and five apples and you declare that everyone has a right to have an apple, well, okay. Um, you still got 25 people and five apples. So it's, um, it's making, um, it's making an ethical declaration about something that isn't an ethical question about something that's a, a math question, essentially. So in a sense, we actually already are that, that incredibly abundant society from the point of view of just a couple of hundred years ago. So the sort of things that we more or less accept that, um, even if we don't think that people have, a an enforceable right to that we're just as a matter of course going to provide a certain level of food and care and other sorts of things for people because we actually have reached the point of abundance in those things where um, this is something that's really pretty readily doable. I mean, it's, it's still not the case that we have infinite amounts of, you know, flour and butter and eggs and milk and, and, and other foodstuffs, but we have them in such abundance and at such low prices that, um, providing for people at some very basic material level is um, is relatively easy to do for a society like ours. And it's also relatively easy for us to help 
um, less wealthy societies in the same in the same condition, which we which of course we do from time to time. Um, but as you get um, what happens is the society gets wealthier and more advanced. It's just that line of scarcity moves up. So we're no longer talking about is there enough wheat to go around and say, are there enough ventilators to go around? So wherever you are, there's always going to be something um, where that line where that line exists and uh, where you have to start making difficult decisions. And that's the the problem we run into in uh, in healthcare. Um, you know, Sarah Palin and the death panels and and that stuff is that. Um, where things are not available in infinite abundance, yes, someone somewhere is making decisions about the allocation of goods. Uh, you ration through prices, you ration through formal rationing measures. Uh, if you're the British NHS, you ration through some monopolistic bureaucracy. Uh, there, there are different ways this, this happens. I think that brings up some really difficult and thorny questions about who gets the power to do that, um, how that power is reviewable, um, how durable that power is, um, you know, whether um, it gets uh, changed and revisited from time to time. And of course, we know it's sort of the nature of bureaucracies to be eternal and expanding. And um, I, 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 I worry quite a bit about that, especially in the case of, um, of the monopoly healthcare systems like the British and the Canadian systems. I worry about it less in the case of the, you know, more typical Western European uh, social insurance model or, or what we have here. Uh, because you've got lots of different parties and lots of different options, and there's no one who really has the ability to make a final and eternal and irrevocable no the way you do in a in a single monopoly system. So um, that makes me um, grateful, I suppose, for the dispersed nature of American healthcare, even though it can be at times um, chaotic. And um, one thing I suppose should be said here. It's a dumb thing to have to say, but you always kind of have to say it. Uh, criticisms of the British system or of the Canadian system or various European systems or the Japanese or the Singaporean system or anyone else's is not saying that you think the American system is perfect or even good. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, room for improvement and reform in the American healthcare system, certainly. Um, I don't think that a national monopoly is a really good model of reform for us. Maybe it works for some other uh, cultures and polities, I don't think it would work very well for us. So, but the question of rationing and, you know, sort of triage as such, I think is, um, is one that's very difficult to speak to in terms of general principle. And, uh, you know, it's a trolley part, it's a trolley problem, uh, kind of conversation. Naturally, these conversations tend to happen in specific contexts, in specific situations. And, Decisions will probably change from context to context and situation to situation. Um, adhocracy, which I think is another term that I stole from you. This is uh, all about <laughs> my uh, my pillaging Jonah Goldberg columns. But um, adhocracy gets a bad reputation, and, and often it deserves to have a bad reputation. But sometimes it's exactly the right thing to do. Uh, sometimes uh, for all of the conservative uh, contempt for things like moral relativism and situational ethics – Sometimes the context really does matter a lot, and sometimes the situation really does matter a lot. Yeah, I mean that's um, I you know, I wouldn't call it adhocracy in the I I wouldn't put a positive gleam on the word adhocracy, but like, um, you know, this is a very Burkean thing, right? It's a very Hayekian thing. It's muddling through, you know. Yeah. This is why you uh you you know 
libertoid types love common law, right? It's like judges sure. making law in specific circumstances with specific, um, you know, context, and not going, not trying to universalize everything for every context is is a better way to go often. Um, uh, but I'm not sure this is the perfect segue, but we should move to um, your book, um, or your latest book. Yeah. I, I, before we do that, though, just one thing that's just sort of in my head. So, um, you know, in the in the British system, one of the ways they ration care is essentially through life expectancy. You know, uh, they call it, you know, quality of life, and it's a more complex calculation than that. But essentially, it's life expectancy. So, in a sense, they're rationing by age. Uh, so, age, of course, isn't the only way to ration things. There are all sorts of criteria and criteria you could use. Uh, you could use, you know, economic output. You could use IQ. And these things all sound, you know, horrible and inhumane. And tomorrow, Media Matters is going to be saying, you know, Kevin Williamson advocates <laughs> discriminating based on IQ for healthcare. But we do that in other things. We do it, for instance, in immigration, essentially, that um, it's much easier to immigrate to the United States if you're a high paid person uh, with an advanced degree than if you're not. Um, so we don't maybe do it or think of it in terms of, uh, something as extreme as making a decision about this person lives and this person dies, but we make very important decisions about people's lives based on, uh, all sorts of criteria that could be considered, if not arbitrary, then easily contestable. Yeah. No, it just occurs to me when you're saying that, like, imagine you're stuck on a deserted island with a bunch of people and there's one old guy who knows everything there is about the flora and fauna of the island. He knows how to build a boat to get off the island. He knows like he's a survivalist by training, but he's old and he doesn't have a lot of years left. And for whatever reason, you got to sacrifice someone to a to a native tribe or throw someone into a volcano or whatever. You wouldn't pick that guy just because he doesn't have a lot of quality years left over somebody much younger um, because they do have a lot of quality years left. Right? I mean, there are you could you can imagine scenarios where you would ration otherwise. The whole conversation, though, makes me very nervous because it's one thing to talk about this is sort of the in the equivalent of over beers in a pub. And mm -hmm. it's another thing to imagine uh, the people we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation <laughs> deciding um, – who we know, eat first? Who we eat first? You know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know. Whatever you think about Ezra or you know the folks at Morning Joe, um, there are other people I would choose to decide who gets eaten first um, rather than those guys or the people of felicity with clever wordplay. I mean, yeah. that would actually benefit the two of us quite a bit, right? That's, that's <laughs> but, um, you know. Only skill I have in life. <laughs> um. All right, so one way to segue into the sort of the, the smallest minority, which is a wonderful book, um, um, as is as was your end of the world book, which I gave a glowing review to a national review. Um, um, one of the more annoying sub arguments out there. So I wrote this column uh, recent this week where I made this point that like. Um, we, challenge, we, we face challenges and crises like this in stages, and stage one is denial, right? It just, it's not really happening. Trump's saying we have it completely under control. Um, uh, the number's going to go down from 500. Uh, my uncle was a physicist at MIT, so you got to believe me, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then 
stage two is the confirm your priors phase, where because this shock to the system is so shocking and so novel and so complicated and hard to get your mind around, you retreat to the ideas that you already had been pushing. So Bernie Sanders thought that during a roaring economy, this was the best time to have Medicare for all. And now that we're looking at a crushing economic blow, it's the best time to have Medicare for all. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, and it doesn't mean necessarily that your your priors were wrong. Sometimes your priors were wrong beforehand and become more right after. So like Elizabeth Warren, you know, wanted to cancel student debt beforehand, which I thought was dumb. And I'm still not in favor of it, but there's a much better argument for it now when you're trying to like flood the system with liquidity um, than there was before all of this. Uh, and, you know, stage three is when you, um, uh, actually start crafting policies fit to the moment that you're in and we're still struggling with all of that. And then stage four is the new normal, which we can talk about in a second. But, uh, um, one of the annoying sub arguments in all of this during the confirm your priors phase was, uh, this proves libertarians were always wrong. This proves why we need government. This proves uh, that you know um, the people who think government can't do anything um, are wrong about everything because obviously government needs to do something here as um, a very difficult to label um, – I mean you're what an um, anacro-capitalist, uh, a, a, um, anarcho-capitalist uh, Eisenhowerian, Eisenhowerian or whatever that was. Uh, okay. How do you how do you parse this kind of stuff? How do you respond to that stuff? Now that well, you're not on you're Twitter, not respond to things that are dumb, and uh, <laughs> so I I don't think about that stuff too much. Um, my uh, my absence from social media has been a, a real uh, blessing, and not having to think about really dumb arguments. So there's a cartoon version of libertarianism, which is. Uh, which actually is some libertarian's position, you know, the sort of anarchist uh, interpretation of libertarianism or the anarcho-capitalist interpretation of, uh, of libertarianism. And, um, you know, as a purely philosophical matter, um, it's got some, some, some merit and some attractions, I think. That isn't where most libertarians are. Uh, most libertarians are not people who think that there should be no government. So if you are saying this shows why Paul Ryan's view of the world is wrong. Well, you're just, you're not making any sense. Paul Ryan is not a man who believes there should be no state. If you're saying this is why Joe Republican, you know, even hardcore sort of libertarianist Republicans like Rand Paul or Ron Paul even are wrong about things. These guys are also not guys who believe that there should be no state. So if your argument is this shows why people who believe there should be no state are wrong, then you can like call up both those guys. And, and and have that conversation with him, but it's not you know something that's really a, a much of a, a going uh, political position. So in a sense, um, you know, there there are libertarians who probably would argue this actually shows exactly what we're talking about. That what you want is a state that is focused on particular things that states are good at, and not on things that states aren't good at. Because it's still the case that sixty something percent of our spending at the federal level is not national security and dealing with epidemics. It's it's wealth redistribution of various kinds, and social insurance. So something I've been trying to kind of articulate for a while, which honestly I don't think I've done a very good job of, and maybe I should sit down and try to write a long essay of it, is that um, you know, if you start with Hobbes and Leviathan, state of nature, and kind of the beginnings of, of, of Western notions of the state, 
and extended all the way out through, you know, Tocqueville and the American founders and Hayek and, and, and some other thinkers on the, on the, on the left as well. The kind of line that runs through all of this is that the idea of, of what the state is, is essentially a tool for risk mitigation. So if you're living in, in Hobbes's, you know, state of war of all against all, you agree to submit to the arbitrary and cruel and maybe even inhumane power of Leviathan because it's less risky than dealing with uh, the mob and the, uh, you know, Lord of the Flies scenario that, that you're like. Stationary life is bandit, like. right? Yeah, the stationary bandit. And so, you know, Hayek takes the same, uh, articulates the same attitude when he's making his defense of, of social insurance programs, which are essentially programs that the government organizes to deal with risks that we as individuals are not really well equipped to take on ourselves, whether that's, you know, public goods, whether that's national defense or whether that's social insurance. So I think if we could um, focus ourselves and look at the idea of the state and the government, not as an expression of our national character or our highest moral and spiritual strivings or all the rest of this stuff that I'm not allowed to say on a family podcast that we bring <laughs> to government and think about it just as a convenience um, as a tool for risk mitigation, then I think you could take certainly not the, you know, the far ends of the uh, tails of the political bell curve, but you could take the big, you know, sort of 60, 70, 80% part in the middle and have a much more intelligent discussion about this is what we think the state is there to do. It's there to help us manage problems that we can't manage through the market or as individuals or on our own. And there are people on the left and people on the right who have very different ideas about what those programs should look like. But if you're talking about them all in the same context, operating toward the same goal from the same assumptions, then I think you can have a much more productive conversation. If And this is something I get into a lot in the smallest minority. So if your idea of the state is that it's a cultural mascot that says who we are as a people and take this kind of quasi-religious view of the state and the president is a national sort of spiritual totem. And if, you know, your team is in power, then you're in good shape. And if you're out of power, you feel excluded and alienated and humiliated by the fact that the other team is, is, is in the office, then you're never going to get to the point where you can have any kind of really productive discussion, I think. And um, there are questions to be answered about, you know, who we are as a people and what our, you know, our, our transcendent values are. But I don't think those are questions that are really applicable to the day-to-day operations of the state and public policy. So if we could sort of set that as the parentheses around the conversation, I think that responsible people who have really very, very different political preferences and political ideas could, in that context, have a much more useful discussion. And so if your thing is you want to go on Twitter and say, well, Paul Ryan thinks there should be no government, well, that's fine. I mean, it's a free country. Do what you want, but I don't think anyone should listen to you. And, um, you know, I'm not going to take the time to even think about those kinds of people too much. So um, just to push back um, a little bit on this, I know you have answers for it. Um, didn't hear much about civil society in there. And I heard probably unfairly uh Echoes of, you know, Barack Obama's second inaugural, right? Where in in Obama's framing of the you know, the role of government, he says, you know, there are basically two political actors. There's the individual 
and there's the government. And whatever the individual can't do for themselves, uh, the government is there to do it. And as Yuval Levin, Yuval Levin has argued um, in not his latest book, although I'm sure it's, there are bits of it in there too. It's implied to be sure. Um, but in his previous book, I think it was Shattered Republic, the problem with that vision is that it leaves out the vast warp and woof of um, where people actually live and where problems actually get solved, right? I mean, of, with local communities, mediating institutions, um, all the rest. And this is sort of a dead horse for me on this podcast, but um, – If the state thinks that its only role – that its role is just to do the things that individuals can't do for themselves, that actually accelerates a lot of atomization because it allows people to work um, independent of other people and uh, and causes them to withdraw from the places where people actually get real human flourishing, which is with other people, you know, yeah. doing things together. How do you respond to all that? Well um – yeah, I would respond that um, if I gave the impression that I think that there are individuals in the state to the exclusion of individuals operating in, you know, voluntary groups and civil society, then that was not what I intended. Um, as we're seeing right now, of course, um, you know, businesses are very important providers of necessary things. I mean, we don't think about this all the time, right? We think about businesses being there to make money and sometimes we buy stuff from them. But, uh, you know, if they're not out there making ventilators, who is? Right. And um, It's like so, you, you're thinking your, in your end of the world book about how bathrooms at Starbucks are public goods. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Starbucks, especially in New York City, Starbucks is a chain of public bathrooms with a coffee bar attached. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not the other way around. And um, so, yeah, I'm as you know, I'm certainly a big believer in uh, voluntary associations and civil society and church and and all those things that I think are very – uh, important, and these are part of the ways that people solve problems for themselves without relying on, you know, state uh, action. I did preface and my I, remarks by saying I know you have an answer to this. Oh, so. sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what's interesting to me about this is that there was a point in history in which the left was really much more of a partisan of these competing centers of, of private power than they are now, where they really genuinely believed in things like labor unions. And right. the NAACP and the ACLU and and things like that, whereas I think those are all sort of now from the you know the sort of AOC. Did I just use that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez? I don't like using the <laughs> uh, point of view. Are all really just adjuncts to the state in some way or the other? Um, they are ways to express state power, to deploy state power, or to repackage state power, or or to shape state power. Um, instead of being your truly kind of independent centers of power in in in, a, in the society, so I think that a healthy society has lots of sources of power and lots of sources of action and lots of places you can turn to for assistance. You know, this was the um, the famous thing with um, Trotsky in the Soviet Union that the old uh, way was he who does not work shall not eat, and the new way under Stalin, which in Trotsky's defense, he was being critical of when he wrote this was he who does not obey shall not eat. Mm -hmm. So if you've got, just take, you know, the basic thing like food, if you're in the United States, there are lots of ways to get food. You know, you can buy it. There are charities, there are food shelter, there are food pantries, there are churches, uh, there are government programs that'll give you food stamps or lots of things. So there's no single choke point where you can say, 
well, we can use this to make X, Y, and Z happen. If you don't comply with this, then you can't do that. And um, that sounds a little paranoid to talk about, but we do really right now, we are developing a kind of new politics, which again, I write a lot about in that book that um, is based on leaning on these choke points in certain kinds of way. For instance, using access to university education or specifically uh, or particularly using employment as a uh, as a weapon of political discipline, as a way of saying, you know, if you believe X, Y or Z thing or you say this thing or you associate with this kind of group, you can't be employed. And uh, these are really powerful ways of cracking down on uh, on on uh, not only political dissent, but different kinds of lifestyles, different kinds of values, different kinds of moral and, and ethical values. You know, it's worth keeping in mind that in the old days of the uh, you know so-called lavender menace, most of the policing that was done of homosexuals wasn't through the criminal statutes uh, that 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 outlawed sodomy. They were through things like discrimination and employment, right. and that's what really kept people kind of under the thumb of people who uh, who wanted to. Uh, wanted to police their sex lives in that way. So to the extent that we have this developing uh, politics of leaning on those choke points, I'm glad that there, there are lots of them. And that's one of the things that civil society also accomplishes as well. One of the great things in Hayek that I, I write about a little bit in the book, um, although not as much as I would like to, is he has this great defense of um, the social necessity of having people who are independently wealthy. And um, which sounds like a very, you know, right wing top hat cigar smoking kind of thing to say. <laughs> uh, we're we're really very necessary for society. Uh, not that I'm independently wealthy, but, um, you know, this sort of monopoly man monocle thing going on. <laughs> but um, it's true that people who are independently wealthy really can't be leaned on in the way lots of other people can. Right. Uh, that you can't take away their ability to make a living. You can't, uh, you know, pressure them the way you can pressure someone who is a university professor or a journalist um, or journalists, especially at a magazine that doesn't have the guts to stand up for its hiring decisions. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, but it, it's hard. And so you've got uh, situations where those people create either in their own lives or in institutions that they support forums and processes and, uh, and ways of exploring, you know, new kinds of uh, social dynamics, new kinds of ideas, new kinds of lifestyles. And there's a lot of important experimentation and uh, argument and discourse that goes on in that world that really would be very easy to crush without the existence of people who are just independently wealthy. Um, and I kind of, in one sense, think that that is why there is so much focus from the left right now on billionaires. Because you know, when we talk about inequality, we never talk about poor people. We right. talk about rich people. And we don't talk about, well, hey, here's someone whose life sucks. And how do we make this person, you know, able to have a better life in material terms and make him more self-sufficient and able to be a more the captain of his own ship. We talk about, well, why does Mark Zuckerberg have so much money and how can we take some of it away? And does anyone really need this and, and that kind of stuff? Uh, I think that the freedom of action that very, very wealthy people enjoy is a source of great resentment. And that's really where this money and politics stuff comes in. It's not because anyone thinks it's effective. Ask Mike Bloomberg how many votes you can actually buy if you want to. It's like seven, as it turns out. Yeah. But um, I think that it's really just about resenting the fact that these people are beyond policing in, in many conventional kinds of ways. Um, it's a great point about how diffuse institutions and in power um, create space for experimentation. 
which I want to return to in a second, but that also reminds me of our sponsor this week, SaneBox. All right, so this is a bit of a strange advertiser for me and for The Remnant because as people who follow me on Twitter know, um, I kind of have a a point of personal pride about how insanely big my uh, new email box is on my iPhone app, and I often will tweet screen grabs of it to torture people with, um, uh, particularly my friend Shoshana, who is uh, neurotic about this. Um, So... Uh, and and I, I will just admit up front, I know I am weird. Um, I knew that when I, you know, uh, started collecting the, the, the hides of, um, roadkill, but that's a different issue. Um, uh, but I'm just sort of like, I, I kind of just want to see where this thing goes. And I like torturing people and triggering people with it. And the, but the fact that it tortures people and triggers people so much suggests to me that there really is a great audience out there for SaneBox. Inbox Zero is a thing of the past. We're all so inundated with email now that it's no longer about responding to everything. It's about responding only to the important things, the messages that truly matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in. Think of it as an EMT for your email. As messages flow in, SaneBox does the triage for you sifting only the important emails in your inbox and directing all the other distracting stuff into your sane later folder so you know what messages to pay attention to now and what stuff you can get to later on. It also has nifty features like the sane black hole where you can drag messages from annoying senders you never want to hear from again and the sane reminders to ping you if if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. Best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. Actually, now that I, th- now that I read this and it's no longer about Inbox Zero, maybe I'll, I'll give this a try. See how SaneBox can magically remove the distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com slash dingo. Today, to start your free trial and get a $25 credit, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash dingo. We thank SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So, uh, as um, as many people know, this podcast uh, has a great audience that buys books a lot. And um, I really think that people should buy not just the smallest minority, but the entire oeuvre of Kevin Williamson. Um, but there's one book that I do not recommend um, for even the highly literate and almost expert casual reader, which I'm going to now name drop because it had a huge influence on me nonetheless, and that is Violence and Social Orders. Did you ever read it? No, I've not read that. Yeah, well, it is... I've read from it. Yeah, it is the most brilliant yet utterly impenetrable book <laughs> I have ever attempted to read. Finnegan's Wake of uh, political thinking. Yeah, yeah and um, what's the? It's, it's Douglas North and some colleagues who wrote it, and you know, and, and Douglas North is one of the great champions of how, of institutional economics. He got a Nobel Prize, I, I think, and one of the points. 
that I took from the book, um, which was like pulling teeth from a moving patient, um, was that uh, um, one of the things that flips that you get to this sort of tipping point um, of moving out of uh, natural societies, which are command and control, you know, monarchies, that kind of thing, um, towards modern democratic societies. I'm not using his all of his the terminology um, is the diffusion of competing institutions of power, right? And so that's one of the reasons. What's one of the theories? And I think it's in a, at the very minimum, it's a necessary but not sufficient part of the explanation about why democracy emerge, liberal democratic capitalism emerges in England is that you had um, a weak king and um, and no standing armies, which was part of the reason why he was weak, because it was an island, um, and you had competing centers of power. And what, what competing centers of power does is that over time, it encourages a, um, a rules of the game where competing elites are willing to take a loss in the short term to maintain the viability of the system as a whole, right? And it's sort of like, um, I mean, it's, a, it's not a perfect analogy, but you know how the joke in development you know, uh, studies is that the most important election in a lot of these South American or African um, uh, former dictatorships transitioning to democracy isn't the first election, it's the second one. Yeah. Because the first election, you know, the winner is perfectly happy to be elected into power. It's whether or not the winner of the previous election is willing to be elected, voted out of power. And um, it's that it's it's that dynamic of being willing to abide by the rules of the game, even when your team loses this round. And um, that's one of the things that I think is sort of getting at a lot of the stuff that you're talking about is that what you want is a, such a diverse portfolio of centers of power and of, of sources of meaning in a society that um, people, first of all, don't put all of their individual meaning in a single identity, be it nationalism or socialism or, or religion or whatever, but instead they, they outsource parts of themselves to these different institutional um, arrangements that give them some of their meaning and therefore, they're allowed, they allow themselves to care about maintaining these institutions in a way that a, a one-size-fits-all-from-above approach from government would stamp out. And, um, um, and so I'm kind of with you on this, is that I, I think that, again, going back to your first point or one of your earlier points, it's not necessarily that a lot of this stuff is planned. I don't know that, you know... Um, the people who are, um, you know, the members of the managerial class who've actually read the managerial, you know, revolution or Schumpeter or any of that kind of stuff has got to be 0.01%. Um, uh, they are all pursuing their interests as they see them on their terms. But the way the system is sort of set up now is to encourage this um, one bottleneck in Washington approach to how society is organized, and I don't think people have really thought through the downstream consequences that could come of that. Does that make sense, or am I just rambling? No, um, it, it makes total sense. You know, it, um, there was a time in our history, even in just in the realm of politics, 
it mattered a lot what well actually in, in, in the modern context it still does so if you are um, if you're someone who's running for political office probably as a Democrat in a large uh, largely african-american city it matters a lot what the pastors think about you and that used to be more true I think in general uh, American politics where the churches and the, the class of you know people who were uh, Kind of the public intellectuals of the 19th century in, in, in many local contexts were the, uh, were the clergy and certainly the public intellectuals of the, the 17th century or the, or the 18th century, rather. Um, so you had this, you know, center of power that was very important to people that exercised some influence in politics, but also exercised influence over domestic life. And um, it was this really vital thing. Uh, something I tried to resurrect back when I was a newspaper editor is that um, it used to be very common in the United States for your local newspaper to in the Sunday paper, they would run transcripts of the sermons that were going to be given in the uh, in the churches that Sunday, or the ones that had been given the uh, Sunday before. Uh, it used to really matter what the illegal women voters thought about X, Y, or Z, or the Republican Women's Club of Schenectady, or, or, or whatever. And uh, the decline of those institutions, I think, has really imposed some really severe social and political costs on us that I don't think are really widely understood. Um, you know, we all talk about bowling alone and that kind of stuff, but um, I don't think even that critique really captures the way in which we've been impoverished by the diminution of these uh, things. Is that word actually pronounced diminution? I think it is. I think uh, probably. Think yeah. yeah. Um, you know, how sometimes you read words, but you never say them out loud. Then you say them out loud for the first time in a context where you're not actually sure how to pronounce it. That's always yeah, bad. Welcome to my world. The guy who's yeah. my, my father was terrible about that, but um. Uh, Noah Rothman on the commentary podcast, who's a brilliant young guy, and I, I'm very fond of him. But he sometimes just comes flying out of the gate, throwing words around that are just so horribly mispronounced. <laughs> I also have the sort of the Spike Jones problem of my brain grabs a word that sounds like the word I'm looking for, and I use that instead sometimes. And so I, I almost 30 years later, I have friends who I used to be a television producer with, who still make fun of me because I referred to somebody as not having an academic pedicure. <laughs> um, which was true, technically. But <laughs> well, true, yeah. One of my favorite all-time typos was I got a woman who was applying for a reporter's job in a newspaper I was editing. And um, she said that she had just graduated from uh, college with a Degree in communications and an emphasis in pubic relations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I gave her a copy editing test when she came in, which was her resume. And I set it down in front of her and said, just look at this and tell me when you find the mistake. And she looked <laughs> at it sort of sweating for about five minutes. And then she goes, I sent out 400 copies of this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Did you hire her? I did actually, oh, but she didn't last very long. She wasn't very good. Wasn't <laughs> smart young woman. She's not suited for the job. I hope she's not listening. Uh, <laughs> I, I doubt very much she is. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's change subjects a little bit. Uh, um, Chris Starwalt was on the podcast recently, and it was a surprisingly popular episode. Um, no offense to Chris, and uh, and he made a really interesting insight that I I now can't get out of my head in any of these podcasts, which was that um, we were about 40 minutes in, you know, maybe a little, we're a little longer into this one. And he said, he was talking about the election and about what 
presumably Biden and Trump have to do. And he said, look, at the end of the day, whatever your politics are, if you're still listening to this podcast, you are probably not a persuadable voter. And, True. <laughs> you know, what he meant by that was just simply that people who take politics really seriously make up their minds pretty early in the electoral process. And um, and so the race is on for um, speaking in broad general terms, uh, the least serious voter or the least attentive voter. Um, uh, obviously, any broad statement like that, they're going to be exceptions. And I think this cycle in particular, there are a bunch of people who are closer to our point of view who may support the Republican Party or support um, some of the most of the positions of the Republican Party, at least vis-a-vis compared to the Democrats, but also struggle with the idea of reelecting Donald Trump. Um, and would it be better for the nation to have, you know, Joe Biden shouting, get these squirrels off of me for four years, um, but otherwise not doing more damage to the country? And I don't want to get into a big Trump thing. Most listeners who know where we are know where we come down on, on the guy. Um, but it's one of the sort of themes in the, in your book is that democracy ain't that great shakes, right? And the and that uh, it may be in the Churchillian sense the least bad system, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have flaws. Um, where do you, just so why do you explore on that a little bit? Like where do you come down on the state of our democracy right now and 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 our sort of fetishization of it? Yeah, well, so democracy. My defense of democracy is just as a procedure. You know, democracy is a way to make certain kinds of decisions that's better than the alternative, which is violence. So, um, and procedural democracy is enormously important. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, if you ever seen a country that's lost it, um, you see a country that's learned to appreciate it. Um, what's important in government is accountability, uh, legitimacy, buy-in, and uh, and efficacy, of course, and, and, and competence. So would I be comfortable with a government that is much less democratic in some ways? Yeah, I would. Um, I think I, I prefer having a Senate that's not directly elected. Um, I certainly prefer having an electoral college to the direct mass election of the president. Um, I wish political parties were more powerful than they are, not less powerful. Um, people talk about, you know, these elites scheming in Washington and the smoke filled rooms and all that. If those people had any power, Donald Trump never would have been anywhere near the Republican nomination and no one know who Bernie Sanders is. Um, you know, both of these guys, uh, one of them was successful and one of them is almost successful in capturing the nomination of a party to which they do not belong, which is, um, kind of an interesting place to be. Um, and the fact that they don't belong is seen popularly as being kind of, uh, as being in the benefits side. Uh, so yeah, I would like to see more mediation in that sense. I'd like to see less, you know, direct exercise of popular power. There are places where that works. As everyone knows, I'm a big fan of Switzerland, which has a lot of direct democracy, but it's a very different kind of country from ours. Um, you know, Switzerland's full of Swiss people and the United States is full of maniacs. And it just, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to, to make those things work in the same way. They also have, so, a kind of, they, they also have, I mean, I'm a big fan of Switzerland too, We've talked about this and written about it over the years a bunch. They also have democracy where you kind of want it, which is at the local level. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, it's like 
I love the stories about how little villages refuse to give some resident who's lived there for 20 years Swiss citizenship, like it falls yeah. to them. I think that's irritating. fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is kind of an interesting thing about their system that um, immigration decisions are made at the local level rather than at the national level. Uh, I've told the story a couple of times as Tina Turner happened to be becoming a Swiss national when I was visiting at one point and, you know, she had to trundle down to her uh, council and prove that she could speak German and that she had enough money not to be a drain on the uh, public resources. <laughs> and it turns out she was, she was fine on both fronts. But, um, but this is something that's actually misunderstood about the, um, the Nordic system. you know where Tina Turner well. learned German, by the way? I mean, that's pretty- she's lived in Switzerland for a long time. She's married to a German man. Oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. She's, That's fascinating. She's lived outside Zurich for 25 years or something like that. So um, she's been there for, for a while. And she's married to a German uh, music executive who's lived there for a long time. So, um, but, you know, as I was saying, the thing that's misunderstood about the Nordic systems as well, whereas people think about Sweden and they think that they have, you know, Swedish healthcare, some version of like the British NHS or the Canadian system, but like, you know, even more pumped up because it's the Nordic countries, but it's not. They don't have national monopoly systems like that. They have things that tend to be administered on the local level, uh, which is much, much more effective from a program design point of view for a lot of kinds of polities because people are more honest and more trusting and more uh, forthright when they're dealing with people they know and dealing with their neighbors and people with whom they have other kinds of relationships. So, you know, if you're the United States and you're 327 million people and you're dealing with someone who's far away in Washington, a city you may never have visited and not know anyone there, it's a very different kind of relationship from I'm going down to my local council where, you know, my second cousin is a member of the uh, board and I have to pass my neighbors and see people I know there. Um, You behave differently and you act differently and you get different kinds of outcomes. And it's also on the flip side, too, if you're an administrator or a bureaucrat, and you're dealing with cases for people who are in your community, people you know, people you may be related to, or you go to church with, or you're on the soccer team with, or something like that, you behave differently as well. And uh, so one of the, the things that I think is misunderstood about a lot of the, the Nordic programs at the secret sauce is uh, is localism. It's not nationalism. It's not, you know, gigantic monopolistic state programs. I and mean, they've got a lot of those too, don't get me wrong, um, more than they, they probably need. But the things that they have that are really the most effective and I think that are the most enviable in, in many ways. Um, and I think that the conservative attitude toward these countries is really kind of backward, that um, there's a lot to like about Finland and Norway and Sweden and, and, and Denmark and countries like that. I don't think we should try to replicate their systems in the United States. I don't think that would work. But I think there's a lot to be learned from them. And they are not miserable uh, Cuba-style uh, hell holes and backwaters are pretty nice countries that a lot of people are pretty satisfied with. And uh, we ought to maybe explore why it is that people are pretty satisfied with it and why so many Americans look at those systems and think maybe I'd like to have something more like that. My short answer to that is it's really basically all about what I was talking about at the beginning, which is risk aversion and risk management, that people are willing to accept uh, higher taxes if they think they're getting something good for it. And they're willing to accept maybe even inferior outcomes in some ways um, if those inferior outcomes are accompanied by a great deal of reduction in risk. So I think that people, if they thought that, well, I get health care that's 90% as good, but it's guaranteed I'm never going to get a bill for $200,000, a lot of people would take that trade off. I remember in the 90s, early 2000s, I guess, my mother, uh, when she passed away, and her last stay in the hospital 
know, she'd been there for a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks or something like that. And we got this absurd bill for $396,000 or something like that. But because she was a state employee, she had this ridiculous, you know, state worker insurance. So we ended up getting a check (laughs) rather than uh, actually having to pay someone $400,000. That's a goofy system that makes people really uncomfortable. And, um, and it also it's, it privileges people who are good at dealing with bureaucracy and things right. like that. I can remember one time getting this enormous bill for a hospitalization. And uh, I was like, what the hell? You know, I've got insurance. Well, this, this should be covered. And they said, well, your insurance doesn't cover this. And it took months of going back and forth before I figured out that they had entered in the policy number for my dental program <laughs> uh, rather than for my actual insurance, which, yes, as it turns out, my dental insurance does not cover uh, extensive hospitalization. So, um, but if you're not someone who, you know, is good at really reading and dealing with documents and navigating bureaucracies and things like that, these things can be really very difficult. Um, we're, we're, we're running past the hour mark here, though I could do this for a while. Um, uh, one quick question. Do you have a bird? Are you hearing that whining in the background? Yeah, what is that? That's my dachshund who's being excluded from the room and does not like to be separated. Oh, okay. Because it's uh, as as and as you know, I've often referred to dachshunds as as tubular snapping turtles. Um, <laughs> but uh, should I go get her? You want to say hi? Sure, bring her on. So this is the uh, this is the bird. Huh. how old is he? Uh, she is 13. She's a very old dog, actually, but she's still quite a uh, puppy and bouncing around and all that oh, sort of stuff. So. The little, the little just, ones can actually live pretty long, too. Yeah. yeah. She just does not like to be left out. I, I believe me, I understand. One of the reasons why I'm recording this at the dispatch rather than at uh, my home, which is completely empty, um, well, one is because there was a workman, but that there was a workaround there. Um, but two is because I have a menagerie of animals that all think <laughs> it's do. vital to get the word in on podcasts when I record them. Um, you know, the funny thing is with, with the dachshund is that, um, so my wife and I both work from home. So sometimes we're in separate rooms and she does not like that kind of separation because she doesn't know where to go. Yeah. Cause she wants everyone to be together. And so she'll run kind of back and forth. And, uh, this is why I rented an office, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an update to the classical philosophical problem of bird, burdens dachshund, right? Yes. <laughs> Instead of burdens as. Uh, I'll let people Google that. Um, so, okay, so we we settled the uh, the the uh, quadruped bird issue. Um, also, so there was a great episode of Mash um, a long time ago, obviously. Where they have to defuse a unexploded artillery shell in the middle of the compound, and they're reading the instructions, and it's a classic example of how bureaucracy screw things up. And like step three is cut the green wire, and then they do that, and then radar reads step four, or Colonel Blake reads step four, and it's but first cut the red wire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I feel like I've committed the podcasting equivalent of that in that first of all i didn't identify who you are you were the rope we talked about it beforehand but then i didn't actually say anything the roving That's correspondent right. at national review um you have a brand new newsletter out which is great and um and the book you wrote the smallest minority i never actually asked you to state its thesis plainly it's like yeah. we started in uh the the third episode of the seminar on it um, right, yeah. so before we move off of it why don't i give you at least a chance to sort of make the basic argument of the book. 
Well, the basic argument of the book is that democracies use conversations to solve problems. And that if we can't have an actual honest conversation as individuals, but instead insist on treating each other only as symbolic representatives of rival social tribal groups, then we can't actually have that conversation and democracy becomes, um, well, you know what Twitter's like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So as as I've been telling people, you know, there's this kind of a urban colon that that people remind themselves of sometimes. So if you're sitting in a traffic jam, the thing to remember is that you are not in traffic, you are traffic. And likewise, if you're looking at Twitter thinking, this is a sewer, you know, you're not in sewage. <laughs> hey, now, I tweet mostly dog pictures these days. Oh, um, I know. That's, uh, that's, that's a <laughs> um, you know, It's funny. We had um, uh, Stephanie Slade on from Reason a couple weeks ago, and um, we were talking about all the usual back and forth libertarian versus conservative stuff. And But she wrote a great piece, you know, coming down basically where we are about the nationalism stuff. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and she hadn't read Bourne's, Randolph Bourne's stuff about the difference between government and state. And I think that's sort of even more apropos here, right, is that if you, you know, government is where you have a conversation. It's where people of good faith, mostly, but not always, but of di- disparate and diverse interests argue about the allocation of resources and uh, you know the rule and and how to apply the law and all and how to write laws and and all these various things, um, and they come to some version of a compromise, um, and they're allowed to disagree. It is where politics is supposed to happen. The state is this, as you were putting it, you know this this totem of the national Volksgemeinschaft or something, right? And <laughs> um, and the problem with that conception, is, and, it, and that's why Bourne has that great stuff about how war is the health of the state, is because it brings out this conception of the state as not being a government where people argue in a democracy about, you know, the best course of action, and instead becomes this uh, expression of the national spirit and any disagreement with what the state is doing during war isn't just wrong. It's, in effect, treasonous. Yeah. And this is why the progressives have always looked for moral equivalents of war, right? Is, yeah. is they, they want to foster that. And one of the things I dislike about some of the nationalism uh, that's coming out, maybe not necessarily from you know, you know my, our friend and your employer, Rich Lowry, but from some of the other nationalists, is this – sort of nod to this conception of the state because after all the state and really the president is the president is the only person elected by the entire country and if you think that the national identity is the most important thing in, about politics then you're by definition are making the president the most important thing about the government and about the state yeah. and i think that's just a really dangerous path to go down yeah i've i, I sometimes say that the most useful book ever written about American politics is not a book that's about American politics or about politics at all. It's uh, The Golden Bough by uh, James Schwitch Frazier, which is a book about the, uh, you know, primitive priest king cults and the ways in which their uh, rituals worked. And the new candidate to be the priest king would uh, murder the old one in some ritual fashion and, and take his job. And I think that's really how we think about politics. Um, I'm sort of half tempted to write a book because I think it would be maybe worth saying about 
the American presidency and idolatry. Uh, now, I know you and I don't have uh, the same religious views, but I really think that idolatry provides a good basis for understanding what's going on in our politics, uh, because we really do have this very primitive, superstitious view of the presidency, that if he's the right kind of man who does the right rituals and propitiates the gods in the right way, then the GDP grows, uh, and same with the crops used to grow when you were doing uh, you know, ceremonies for the cereal gods way back when. So from that sense, you know, we've gone from golden calf to golden toilet, which I don't think is necessarily <laughs> a great deal of progress in the world, but, um, but, but there you have it. I think that, um, and this is particularly, I think, true for Christians and especially kind of, you know, uh, evangelical Christians in, in the age of Trump, that there is this real temptation to, uh, you know, engage in this apotheosis of the man in the office rather than think of them as essentially, um, you know, chief administrator, chief magistrate, I guess, as they used to say. I think that is um, bound up in this idea of the state of the, as being the expression of who we are as a people and of our highest longings and strivings and values and those sorts of things. And it just, it just oughtn't to be, I guess. But, um, but when you take away all the other stuff, you know, when you take away things like church and religion, uh, when you see the, um, decline in the role of family in life, um, both in terms of its social importance and also, I mean, we get married later in life. Uh, we get married less often. We have children later in life. We have fewer children. These are things that used to sort of root us in the world and give us uh, both an orientation and a sense of meaning and a sense of responsibility and duty as well. And when these things go away, decline of civil society, those sorts of organizations, then you really are left to the point that you were alluding to earlier, where all that's left is the, you know, the individual and the state and no mediation between them. And um, which then takes you sort of all the way back to Hobbes, right? And you have to, at that point, take the state as being this godly uh, thing, as being, you know, and the president is a kind of demigod and, uh, and uh, you know, an apotheosis. And I think that that is... Um, dangerous culturally but it's also not a good way to get government to do stuff that you want it to do it's not a good way to get the right. bottle fixed and uh because you know if you're this magnificent creature on a uh, white horse and uh riding around and uh denouncing the uh evildoers and uh expressing your society's highest values you're probably not out filling potholes and um i just kind of wanted to fill potholes and stuff yeah i mean uh, i always love i brought up a bunch of times on the podcast steve hayward always likes to tell students that um, we're all mispronouncing president. It was intended to be president. Yes. You know, the guy who presides over stuff, not really like, you know, the philosopher king, savior. Um, you think I, the last few elections would get us over that. Well, that, you know, so, but it's funny. This is a point um, that I, I, I often make about, you know, one of the problems on the right with, in the age of Trump is that, there are actually an enormous number of Trump skeptical conservatives out there. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a, there's a healthy dose of them in National Review. They cover a whole bunch of different perspectives. There are a bunch of them at the Washington Examiner. There are a bunch of them, you know, even at Fox News, um, where I am a contributor. The problem is that at Can the, I'm sorry, I'm fired you yet. <laughs> Um, the problem is is at the mass media level, the um, 
the audience in large part, and therefore the people who care the most about the audience, just don't want to hear the skeptical, you know, Trump-supporting position. They want to hear, you know, you can't just say, I like the judges or he's right about this tax bill, but gosh, I wish he'd stop tweeting and all of these kinds of things. They want to hear, and in part because Trump wants to hear, and therefore his, his Praetorians want to hear, unalloyed praise, which is very much an old-style tribal king god thing, right? And so part of the problems with our with our monkey brains is that when if you do have a we, we tend to turn leaders into idols and we do not like to hear that our idols are flawed and so you can't take the sort of conservative generally pro trump position um and criticize you know call balls and strikes kind of thing you have to you know praise him in every regard even when he is inconsistent, you know, we've always been at war in East Asia kind of thing. He will contradict himself all of the time. And the the order of the day, which actually gets to the original understanding of what the cult of personality was about, you know, is that you have to support in the moment. And, um, and so you get this weird disconnect. And this is one of the reasons why we started the dispatch is that you have an enormous number of smart, decent conservatives out there who on TV are lavish in their praise of Donald Trump, and then you talk to them off camera, and they're much more, let's shall we say, nuanced <laughs> about things. Yeah. And there's not a market for the nuance because people feel, for all sorts of complex psychological reasons, that you are being disloyal by telling the truth in certain ways, or you're being, even worse, heretical. And that's a, that, I mean, that is the real problem, is if you can't say Trump screwed up the first couple of weeks of this corona thing, um, how do you get government accountability? If it's if it's if, if if he did it, that means therefore it's right. That is a really and we had similar problems with Obama. Obviously, um, that's a real bad recipe. There's an early part of my book in which I have the line: uh, "The original sin of the American intellectual is his desire to be popular." And I think a lot of this is a challenge for people like us that you know writers and, and journalists have to decide what it is that we are here to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, if we're here to be partisan cheerleaders and to try to sway elections and to be, uh, you know, public champions of our side and, uh, to own the other side, then that's one thing. If we're here to actually write, you know, about what we think is going on in the world and to, um, do, you know, what traditionally is known as journalism, although the, the line between that and, uh, and non-journalism is increasingly blurrier. But, you know, the point about advocacy journalism is that it still needs to be journalism, I think. And uh, but that's a very difficult place for a lot of people to be because we, you know, we we want to make a living. We've got stuff. We got mortgages we want to pay and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, people will probably remember Albert J. Nock for a lot longer than they remember Sean Hannity. <laughs> But Hannity's going to make a lot more money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, even someone like William F. Buckley never earned probably 10% of what Bill O'Reilly makes. Mm. And he probably never wrote a book that sells, oh, I don't know, maybe a third of what you know, one of Bill O'Reilly's books would sell, yeah. something like that. So um, it's easy for us to be corrupted by not only just the desire for money, which I think the desire for money is one of the uh, 
one of the happier kind of corruptions. It's one of the least <laughs> destructive uh, is the desire to, uh, to to get wealthy, but also the desire for status and standing and influence and that sort of thing. It's very important for some people to be able to say, well, I've got, you know, I've got Kellyanne Conway uh, on my uh, on my speed dial. Or, um, you know, I wrote this and then the president said that. Right. And um, now for me, that sort of stuff doesn't register. I'd rather just have the money. But, uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cheap and easy that way. <laughs> and it doesn't even take that much money, I think. But um, some people really need that sense of status. And uh, you get this flung at you sometimes by these kind of, you know, knucklehead uh, Breitbart types where they'll, you know, say, well, well, you know, what kind of influence do you have? What's your following like? And um, – well, I don't know. And I, just, <laughs> I just write what I think, and uh, some people like it, and some people don't. I remember uh, during the whole, you know, Atlantic uh, brouhaha, someone wrote that. Um, I can't remember who it was, but the argument was there was no need for someone like me there because I didn't represent anyone. I didn't have any constituency. You know, I wasn't like uh, the spokesman for a certain kind of faction or something like that. And, uh, of course, I thought, well, I would think that's why you would want someone, you know, like me there. But um, but there are a lot of people like that. You know, I, in the early part of the book, I tell this story about Cleta Mitchell, who um, on this National Review cruise uh, denounced me as being in one of these inside the Beltway establishment Republicans. <laughs> and I was like, come on, lady, you you literally work well, inside to, the Beltway. Explain to listeners, because I, I love this story. Explain to listeners who Cleta Mitchell is. Well, um She's a, a lawyer um, and a lobbyist, and she's uh, a, a TV commentator sometimes. She's very close to the Republican Party and very Trumpy and all that kind of stuff, and, I, and I'm not. And so, but she literally works inside the Beltway. She is such an insider that she appears on a television show called The Insiders. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she is such a swamp creature that she literally wrote the book on being a lobbyist in Washington. It's called the Washington Lobbyist Compliance Handbook, <laughs> and uh, which she is the author. And which is all fine. That's good and great. But, you know, I just don't give me this like, you know, I'm out here in the, you know, in the wilds of northern Tennessee living on a farm. And you're one of these people who is, you know, there chasing around political power. When I'm the one who actually lives in Texas, you know, I'm right. the one who has no use for uh, D.C. I lived there 11 months uh, once upon a time, and I didn't like it very much. So there's this, you know, this weird posturing thing of being an outsider and being, you know, part of the real America and real people. And, oh, and Texas politicians, by the way, are the worst about this. You know, George W. Bush, I'm sure you probably had a chance to talk to him in private from time to time. Um, he's not that howdy-doody guy he plays on television. Neither yeah. is Rick Perry. Neither is Ted Cruz. Uh, but they, for whatever reason, feel the need to go out there and do this. Uh, I remember Dana Carvey describing his George Bush, his George H.W. Bush impersonation. He said, it's easy. You do one part Mr. Rogers, one part John Wayne. <laughs> and uh, and he's kind of right about that. And these Texas politicians, but also other sorts of Republican politicians, feel the need to play this. Well, I'm just a guy who likes to drink beer and listen to NASCAR, or watch NASCAR. I'm like, come on, Ted, you went to Princeton. <laughs> you know, give me that. Um, yeah, no, it's, it kind of reminds me during the whole against Trump brouhaha in the early days. God, that was a long time ago now. You know, my, my little book, The Case Against Trump, neither sold very well nor was very effective. <laughs> um, uh, but it was true, which is the only defense that it needs. And... Um, um, I remember Sean Hannity just ripping into me and and other people at National Review 
um, f- these elitists who go on cruises. Yes. <laughs> you know? And and Sean, like there just recently been a story about how um, he never flies commercial. He only flies private, you know, and oh, and I was like, it's the whole point of being rich. Yeah. No, look, I mean, look, if I had the money, I would fly. I've flown. I've, I've hitched a ride a couple times on private jets and yeah, it is it's awesome. Yes. <laughs> um, and I don't begrudge anybody for doing it. I do begrudge people when they pretend to be men of the people and populists and attacking people who have 0.1% of their net worth as being sold out and corrupt when, you know, they're monetizing their shtick to no end. And this is probably another reason I'm going to get fired from Fox, but so be it. Um, yeah, you know, so I'm actually poor white trash from West Texas, and I never want to fly commercial again for the rest of my life. <laughs> and and if I never have to do it, I'm going to brag about it. I'm going to be insufferable. <laughs> well, look, I, to be honest, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, I hope it happens for you because then I can hitch a ride with you from time to time. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. So, my plan is your plan, John. <laughs> um, Kevin Williamson, I hope you'll do this again. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, thanks so much for coming on. And I, I mean, I'm just, my battery's about to die here. So, um, it's Kevin Williamson. His latest book is The Smallest Minority. He's talking to us from Texas. He's the roving correspondent for National Review. And, um, you know, there's a part of my brain that hates him deeply because he's, um, a better writer than me about a whole bunch of things that I care about writing about. So, uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jenna. Okay. So, uh, oh, you know, we screwed up. We didn't get Kevin to say, uh, no, you won't. This is a podcast, but, um, uh, for those who don't know, it's a way for us to sort of pay homage to Jack Butler, um, who made it his sort of sign-off thing, and um, uh, we think it's sort of a funny way to do it. And so we will probably keep doing it until we come up with something better because we are an adhocracy around here and we muddle through. Um, so anyway, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks to Kevin Williamson for doing this. Hopefully we can get back to normal podcastery at some point in the future. Um, although um, doing it this way does allow me to be more inventive in how I dress. Uh, more about that another time. And uh, so please go to thedispatch.com to uh, check out everything we got. I got a big thing about political movies coming up in a little bit. And there'll be G-Files galore, uh, David French stuff. We got a lot of interesting pieces on the homepage about Corona and other things. And uh, we're deeply, deeply grateful to all of you who are sticking with us during these trying times. And so until next time, this is Jonah Goldberg. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.